This is a case from the Shoyoroku. King Lin's <laughs> deadly snake. The pointer. Try to get rid of it, and it stays. Try to keep it, and it leaves. Not leaving, not staying. It has no country. Where will you meet it? Everywhere, every place. Tell me, what thing can be so special? The case. Monk asked Zen Master Kingling Shikian, when a student goes by shortcut, then what? Kinglin said, there's a deadly snake on the road. Don't step on its head. The monk said, what about when one steps on its head? Kinglin said, you lose your life. The monk said, what about if you don't run into it? Kinglin said, there's nowhere to escape. And the monk said, just at that time, at such a time, then what? And Kinglin said, it's gone. Gone where? The monk asked. Kinglin said, every place you look, the grass is deep. And the monk said, you must also watch out, teacher. Kinglin clapped his hands and said, Here's another poisonous one. The verse. The boatman turns the rudder in the dark. The lone boat turns its bow in the night. Reed flowers, snow on both banks, hazy water, autumn in the river. The power of the wind helps the sailboat go without roaring. The voice of the flute calls the moon down to the land of spring. Amazing poetry. So I'd like to begin by pointing something out to all of us these times, these uneasy times in this country, around the world, a lot has been, a lot is happening. Some want to get involved, want to open up their mouth and say something. Some want to shut down and disappear. Some are angry, some feel numb. And I think we all have to recognize whatever, whatever we think, whatever opinions we may have for, against, in between, we need to recognize that it is affecting us, all of us. We're all moved in one way or another by what's going on. And in that, there are no opinions. How it moves us doesn't really matter. Fact is, we are moved and it is, many are quite destabilized by that. And it's very important that we, such times, that we go back to the practice, that we turn to the Dharma, that we find ways to stabilize ourselves again and not lose the path. It's a narrow path. It's, uh, it's very easy to get off track. What I've been seeing lately is that you know, we have a, an odd way of practicing. We're not living together in a monastery, obviously, and because of that, there is a sense of going in and out, of not being around, uh, 
Sangha practice, I would call it, for a few weeks maybe. Life calls us and we have to, of course, take care of it and we're not around for a few weeks. Then we show up again. And, and I find that with some practitioners, this can have a very detrimental effect. Going from having clarity, going deep, going from that to back to old habits very quickly. Whole old habitual way of thinking, habitual way of functioning. And I'm witnessing that because I see it all. Obviously, I, I talk to everybody and I see openings. I see how each of you opens up and the light penetrates. And then I see the doors closing again, the windows, the blinds. And then I hear words from darkness again. And it's not that it's a bad thing, it's just that if we allow those words or this way of thinking to determine what's next, then that would be a shame. If we keep practicing, no matter what, then those experiences, those times can actually help us greatly. And we can deepen. Maybe even help others. Because we know what it means to get trapped. Personal experience of what it means to get trapped. And we know what it feels like to experience light penetrating again experiences experiences like glimpses of this as we call it and this is beyond location beyond a person beyond opinions beyond divisions you know, we put up walls, but walls do not exist. But when we put up walls, we reside in a world of walls. Walls go down. Sooner or later, they fall apart. Any wall. So it's just an Ill a temporary illusion. Yet, we obey it as if it is real that becomes our reality. It is always available. I remember some years ago when I was a teenager, I had this old strange habit. I would take a flute, just a simple flute, and go to the, the park or to the... Uh, Orange Grove, we lived by an orange grove, at dusk. And I would sit and play with the flute, play on the flute. And it wasn't really playing. I didn't have any formal practice or training, so it's more like fooling around with the flute. And I don't know what started that strange habit, but I remember that I felt, I sensed some deep yearning to experience something that somehow I knew is available, but I also knew that I'm unable to experience it at home in our small apartment, being exposed to regular family dynamics with my brothers around and parents and all that. I couldn't get beyond the distraction. But there was something inside that knew or guided me to, to listen, to listen, and to communicate. And I felt that in order to do that, I need to find that frequency in me. How do I communicate with this? Not knowing what this is, not knowing where it is, 
How does it look like? How does it sound like? It's an odd thing because you know that there is something, but you don't even know where to begin looking for it. My grandmother heard about it. She thought that's very strange. She thought that maybe the police will catch me and put me in the prison or something. <laughs> but she thought that too when I was running uh, to get in shape. She said, don't run. The police will think you stole something and they'll chase you. <laughs> anyway, that was her way of thinking. But there was an odd experience to, to look for something not knowing what I'm looking for. And at the same time, knowing that there is something that I have to get in touch with. And I did. I was able to get in, to get glimpses, I should say. Just glimpses. Of something that's undefined. And to get in touch with that, I knew that I have to get out of the defined, such as being at home, and the familiar, and to go into something less defined, less familiar, more open. So it was brief, brief, maybe seconds, split seconds of seeing something, recognizing something, but very sporadic. And it didn't, at that point, at that time, it didn't go beyond those moments, those brief moments. So I wasn't clear about that, but I was clear on one thing, though. I was clear about the fact that it is precious. It is accessible and it is not confined by location and it can't be held by a person. I think I'm saying it now in more eloquent words, but it was that kind of an idea of recognizing something as precious, as incredible, as available, and at the same time highly elusive. And what makes this so precious and so special, as the pointer points out, what makes it so special is that it's not special at all. It's not somewhere else. Although we go to different places to get in touch with it, and we do specific things, such as practice, or formal practice, I should say. But it is not so special at all. You can't walk to it, yet it is expressed in your walking. You can't stand on it, but it is standing magnanimously. You can't sit on it, and sitting is not possible without it. And you can't lie down next to it. And lying down is the way it rests. Sitting, standing, walking and reclining. I bring, I'm bringing this up here because those are considered the four postures of the Buddha. I mean for postures of a human being. We, we function in one of those postures. Which means, which means, it is always available, exposed, and manifesting freely. These are the four ways of hinting to us, this is why the four postures of the Buddha, it's the four ways of hinting to us that it is none other than this one here. None other than that. None other than what we call me. The pointer says, try to get rid of it, and it stays. Try to keep it, and it leaves. Not leaving, not staying. It has no 
country. This is the last line, last point here. It has no country. And in this time of rising nationalism here and around the world, this it has no country can be very sobering realization. There is no country. There is nothing to protect. There is nothing to defend, nothing to protect. And there is border patrol, of course. How do we patrol borders knowing there is nothing to protect? Realizing there is nothing to defend, realizing there is no border. That's the only way to patrol borders. It's the only sane word, the way to patrol borders. Zen practice begins by urging us to not be so influenced by our concepts, to not rely so heavily on definitions, whether it's a definition of self or the environment or our surroundings. Then when our attention is no longer swallowed by the inner chatter as it is, the practice is asking us to get quiet and become more in tune on the same frequency, more in tune with the subtleties of what we often define as mundane, insignificant, not important. But what is important then? If we define, when we define things as not important, at the same time we define other things as important. Only the attention goes there. What is important? Where should the attention go to? Where do we find it? Or are we so busy weaving, creating mental constructs that we don't even take the time to settle down and, and get into it? So in our practice, instead of being so absorbed by our thoughts and the storyline, we learn to notice the simple details of everyday life and to experience some level, some level of absorption. Shamatha practice, absorption practice. Total absorption takes time. And practice. But that's okay. As long as we are practicing and as long as we are doing the best, our best, to be absorbed by, to lose ourselves too, then it deepens. And those glimpses do grow, absolutely grow. Insanity grows too. And then we realize that what we call sane is actually insane. So we learn to pay attention to the simple things, just breathing in and out. The raindrops, maybe the frost accumulating on a lawn chair, a tea bag drying in a saucer, whatever it is, whatever is going on. Is it boring? Is it boring? I mean, isn't that what we're doing? We are mastering boredom, right? We go into boredom. We go into every day. Into doing nothing. Into not being entertained by anything. Into just observing. Mastering what is called boredom. What most run away from. In that we are most comfortable. Maybe some of us. <laughs> or maybe sometimes, I should say. Maybe that's better. Sometimes. There are always opportunities, plenty of opportunities, entry points to an experience or to experiences of totality 
of full absorption, total absorption. Always available at any one of the four postures of a human being. In which the observer and the observed are actually inseparable. They're not dual. What a relief that is. What a relief to get a break from ourselves. From what we think. From our opinions. I like, I don't like. I want to go there, I want to go. I don't want to go over there. Who cares? Who cares? Not leaving, not arriving, not, no structure, no borders to speak of. Wide open space. I think this is our problem. We don't know what to do with wide open space. So we put up walls and borders. And we hold on to opinions. It's too boring, isn't it? Without telling others what I think and arguing with them about what they think. What else am I going to do? So how do we resign in this chaos, in this mess, and not get drawn into it, and being able, at the same time, find a way to see the structureless in the structure, the wide open spaces in within borders, within what we call country. How do we do that? I thought about it. It reminded me of years ago when I was uh, traveling, sort of mid to late 80s, I was ex- did extensive travel around the world at that time. And one of the things I liked many things I really enjoyed in traveling. One thing I liked is to arrive at a place, a city, a big city, find a place to sit, whether it's a small bench or a coffee shop, and just look at it. Look at the way people move, especially uh, during rush hour time. Look at how crazed we look, we as human beings. Running around like a chicken without a head being totally absorbed in it, taking it so seriously, having somewhere to arrive, being late, being on time, wanting to go, not wanting to go. You can almost hear the buzz of the storyline in everybody's head, just looking at people. And what was amazing about just sitting and watching it is just I wasn't a part of it, obviously, I was traveling. So I had nowhere to go, nothing to do, no place to be at. So the place I was sitting was as good as any other place at that time. It was no part of any structure. And, and what I saw, what I sensed, obviously, is not something new or different. It's available all the time. But is it available to us when we are keeping up a schedule? When we have a place to go to? When we can be late and can lose our job? How? How do we see that? How do we see one step only? One step. When we take one after the other, after the other, after the other. How do we not lose ourselves completely to that? Well, there are many ways to lose ourselves. and There's a sane way of losing ourselves and there is an insane way of losing ourselves. Not the same. How do we perceive the absolute within the relative. That is the essential question for us, to perceive the absolute within the relative. On an essential level, there is nowhere to go to, no one to meet, no deadlines, no clock time. 
No money to be made. How's that? No money to be made. Nothing else to do. But of course, to our thinking minds, this doesn't make sense. So everyday life and the structure become very serious. We kill and die for it. Bodhidharma said, to see form but not to be corrupted by form, or to hear sound but not to be corrupted by sound is liberation. To be in the structure to reside and function within this chaotic life and to not be corrupted by it. To not be corrupted by it. To not be corrupted by our own opinions, too. To not be corrupted by what we say and think. To see the purity at all times, he says, is liberation. And then he says, eyes that aren't attached to form are the gates of Zen. Ears that aren't attached to sound are also the gates of Zen. That's the entry point. In short, those who perceive the existence and nature of phenomena and remain unattached are liberated. Or non-fettered, as Winnick said. Those who perceive the external appearance of phenomena are at their mercy. This is what we see all around us. We are at the mercy of what happens. So we either go with it or we go against it. Crazily. With it, crazily against it. Again and again, go back to the three pure precepts. Do not create harm. Pure, untainted. Do not create harm. This is not opinion. Then do good. Again, it's not an opinion. It's a commitment. It has no color. It has no division. And then do good for others. Yeah, those. Well, I don't like them. Because they don't think like me. If they think like me, maybe I'll consider doing some good for them. Well, guess what? They think the same. So a wall makes sense. To both sides. In this koan, we meet Kingling, who was a Dharma heir to Dongshan, the founder of Soto Zen, the tradition we practice. The dates of his life were not recorded, so, but we do know he lived in the 9th century China. And right from the beginning, the first time King Lin met Dongshan, Dongshan recognized his great potential and spiritual depth. So the first recorded meeting between them, King Lin first met Dongshan. Dongshan asked him, where did you come from? King Lin said, Wuling. Dongshan said, how does the Dharma teaching in Wuling compare with here? King Lin said, in foreign land, bamboo sprouts are picked in winter. Dongshan said, provide this man fragrant rice cooked in a separate pot. King Lin then shook his sleeves and went out. Those sleeves. You can't do it with a t-shirt. Dongshan said, Someday, this one will trample everyone on earth to death. 
Now, from what I understand, bamboo shoots harvested in winter have more delicate flavor, but they require more digging than spring harvest. The land is harder, frozen, right? So, what was King Lin's meaning? Where is, where are the foreign lands that he's referring to? And what is Dongshan seeing that is praising him so? This is where Dharma dialogues go beyond the limited dimension, beyond cognition, beyond logic. And this is where the delicate flavors of Zen are brought to life, right there and then. You try to figure it out, it's gone. It's gone. When you find that, not trying and not not trying either, there it is. There it is. So he doesn't say how long King Lin lived and studied with Dongshan, but there is a recorded dialogue between them as King Lin was just about to leave. So King Lin prepared to leave Dongshan. Dongshan asked, where are you going? King Lin said, the golden wheel is not concealed, never hidden. In every realm, the red dust is cut off. In every realm, the red dust is cut off. Dongshan said, the great good is entrusted to you. King Lin thanked Dongshan and began to leave. He started to walk towards the gate. So Dongshan accompanied him to the gate and said, in a phrase, how would you describe what you're doing? In one phrase. King Lin said, step by step, walking on red dust, a shadowless, pervasive body. Step by step, walking on red dust. Shadowless, traceless, gigantic, body. Everywhere it manifests. Everywhere. On red dust. In the middle of chaos. Tranquility. Dongshan said, he was silent for a while. He was, sorry, he was silent for a while and then Kinglin said, why doesn't the master speak more quickly? Dongshan said, What makes you in such a hurry? And King Li said something interesting, very unusual in dialogues. He said, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. He then bade Dongshan farewell. The red dust image appears in ancient Taoist and Zen poetry. It refers to the afflictions that arise in us when we deal with everyday affairs, challenges. And King Lin is giving a very powerful description of, of Zen life, step by step, in the midst of what we live, what we experience. what we may be fighting against, fighting for. Right then and there, a shadowless, gigantic body of reality. Being in this world, but not of this world. It's another way to say that. But maybe even that is separating. In, off, later, now, earlier, me, you, bunch of words, 
we just arrange them in different ways and we think it matters. What we think matters is insignificant. What we think doesn't matter reveals everything. Just going back to this, I'm sorry. It's a very interesting expression when you look at it. and We don't know how long he spent with his teacher, but they're saying goodbye. Yeah, they, have, they know what it's about. They understand. No coming, no going. And yet, I feel this moment. Remind me of a different, I'm sorry, in, in Dharma transmission, it's a very complex ceremony, which happens at midnight. It's a, it's a secret ceremony. Uh, at some point at the ceremony, the teacher rubs the head of the student like this a few times. It's a very interesting uh, gesture. It's basically saying, I'm really sorry for what you're about to go through. I feel your pain. It's not going to be easy. It's not easy to do this. Because a lot of people will come and go. A lot of people will get it, will lose it. And you're going to sit there and you're going to look at them knowing they're trapping themselves. They don't see Buddhahood. They don't see that they are a Buddha. And it's difficult. It's difficult. I spoke about this with Shingaroshi too at some point. That it's difficult just to sit in front of somebody and to listen to everything that is just bleh, coming out of their mouth. Nonsense, 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 and more nonsense. But they hold on to it so that they totally believe everything. why she often says, just shut up and sit for a while. You get it. Shut up and sit. Stop talking. Because you may believe what you say. And we do. Shut up and sit for a while. So in this case, the monk asks, Kingling, when he was already a teacher, when the student goes by shortcut, then what? And the footnote says, taking a step is already the long way around. Already, a shortcut is the long way around. In the miscellaneous koans, we have a koan that goes like this, Joshua's unsheathed sword. Glittering, severe frost is illuminating. Asking what it is, the body is cut in half. Just raising the question, body is cut in half. Do you see? Do you feel it? In your gut. Because if you do, go no further. And if you don't, go no further. Go no further, period. And King said, there is a deadly snake on the road. Do not step on its head. Now the footnote says there, he's used to poisoning. He's used to poisoning. He has been poisoned. And because of that, he can poison others. So the monk has guts. And he says, what about if you do step on its head? And the footnote says, you've got guts all right. And Kigan says, you lose your life. Of course, you lose your life. And then we say, 
die on the cushion, die thoroughly, and do it over and over and over and over again. On the cushion. Maybe Zafus should come with a warning label. This practice will kill you. Sit at your own risk. Small label like on mattresses. You can suffocate. The question is, are we ready to die? Are we willing to die? And it's a question with, with two layers, actually. It is asking us if we are willing to let go of the self, of the self, with everything that we have attached to it. To let go of our concepts, our opinions, our personal storyline. To stop protecting an illusion. And the second layer penetrates to the core of our existence. Are we willing to face the simple fact of death is imminent? Actual death. Not just to let go of your opinions. It's one and the same. It's the same question, but different layers. Death is imminent, and there's no way to know when and how. And that's not an opinion. And that is colorless. Everybody is facing that. It was a few months ago, last year. You know about this train that uh, in Hoboken that just ran into the station. There was a woman there, and I may have mentioned it before, there was a woman there standing after she dropped off her kid at the daycare center. She was standing there on the phone or whatever. Split second, the train came into the station, killed her on the spot. Death is imminent. Any time. Any place. Do we live our lives based on this understanding, this simple fact? Or do we live with a notion that, well, today will be like yesterday, pretty much? How do we, based on what? How, why do we even think that? It makes no sense. How do we know? How do we know we're not going to die today? And what happens if we recognize that it may happen? Will it bring us back to this and maybe teach us to appreciate this? Not knowing what's next? Not knowing if we'll make it to what's next? Can we die now and be done with it? So we have to worry about what happens. And then not worrying about what happens, we can truly care. Maybe we can understand what it means to care for others. What it means to truly care. So back to dialogue, the monk, the monk said, what about if you don't run into it? And the footnote says, does it depend on you? Does it depend on you? Well, yeah, I think that today will be pretty much like yesterday. It depends on me. Because I remember what happened yesterday, and I have a plan for today. And that plan depends on me. Well, this woman in Hoboken planned to take the path and arrive at, I think it was a job interview. And I'm sure she felt that it depended on her because she's on time to board the train. She rushed to the train station to be there on time so she can board it and get to, Hobo to, get to New York for the interview. 
Does it depend on you? Kinmin said there's nowhere to escape. There is nowhere to escape. You are always bumping into it. There's nowhere to escape the poison. Everything is equally as poisonous. Everything is. How do we look at that? What is poison? At the same time, everything is equally medicine. If we can die right now, it becomes medicine. If we don't, it is a different kind of poison. You're always bumping into it. A monk once had a different incident asking Lin, for a long time I've been miserably ill and I took poisonous medicine. Please cure me. Kinglin said, gold, poke it into your brain. Gold, he said, poke it into your brain. Poke it into your brain. He said, pour the rich liquor on top of your head. Wake up, now. Die so you can wake up. And the monk said, thank you for this cure. Of course, Kinglin then hit him. Again. You're going to take what I give you and you're going to create a new construct from that. So in this koan, the monk said, just at such a time, then what? The footnote says, don't be flustered. What about when you are not trying to avoid it? Not trying to bump into it. Neither pushing nor pulling. Just this breath. What about then? At that moment. And the kingly says, it's gone. It's gone. There's another koan, another dialogue. You may remember that. When moving, you don't see the constant fundamental principle. When moving, you don't see the constant fundamental. It's gone. Of course it's gone. And the footnote says, although it's a dead snake, if you can handle it, it's alive. If we know what to do with this life, if we don't take it personally, if we don't make storylines, try to live in our own imaginary castles, it's alive. Functioning very well. So the monk said, where has it gone? And footnote says, if you don't believe, look in your breast pocket. King said, every place you look, the grass is deep. And the monk said, you must also watch out, teacher. King Lin clapped his hands and said, here's another poisonous one. True wisdom echoes only itself. True wisdom. So who will do the killing for you? And who will die in the process? When there's another story, when Dogen went to China to study, 
as he got off the, the boat, he went to the market there and uh, he met a Tenzo from a, from a monastery and he started to talk to him. He was very impressed by the, the depth of the understanding of this Tenzo. And that, that, that guy had to leave to take food back to the monastery. Later on, as Dogen was traveling, he ran into him outside the monastery. And he saw this older guy, and he saw him outside in the sun, picking vegetables in the field. And then he came to him and he said, why are you doing this? Can't you find somebody else to do that? So you can go in and maybe preach the Dharma, share it with others, teach others. And this, this guy said, looked at him funny, and he said, if not me, who? If not now, when? Who else will do it? There is nobody else. Who says there is something better I need to be doing? Who else? This is the attitude we need to have. If not me, who? If not now, when? Who is going to do the work? Who's going to wake up? Who's going to die in the process? When am I going to do this? This is the attitude. Whatever we think, it doesn't matter. We go back to the practice. We go back to the cushion. We hone and sharpen the soul every day. So everyday bullshit doesn't trap us. Because very quickly, very quickly, we get caught up again and again in the same weeds that yesterday we found a way out of. Today we're trapped again. Same place, same weeds. Totally different experience. One heals, the other one produces suffering. And all that is on you. 